Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. I've been battling allergies for years now. Let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available release sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. What's up, gang? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazde. I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now listen, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. Number one, people who are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world and doing both of these things despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews with game changers, business leaders, you know, telling us their origin stories, what made them tick, what got them to where they are now. Why? So it can help you step into your greatness within your life, your business, and your career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years of entrepreneurship as a CEO and founder to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation, and I'm stoked to have you here with me. What's up, everybody? Welcome to today's episode of The Greatness Machine. Oh my gosh, I, I don't know what to say. I, I've i been waiting to do this interview for probably a year, but finally uh, got to get the FBI negotiator, former FBI negotiator Chris Voss to do the show, and I'm a huge... <laughs> it's probably the first time you're going to hear me fanboy one of our guests, um, but yeah, incredible show. Um, I love his book, Never Split the Difference. Got to dive into so many different aspects um, of the book, as well as just questions that I've had that many of you probably have regarding, you know, how uh, I'm going to give an example right now, BATNA using best terms to negotiate agreement. Like I was taught that from a friend who you know, Harvard MBA that this is what you need to do. Chris didn't feel that way. So we, t- we got to really dive into all these different aspects about bargaining and negotiation and, 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 and talking about him being a negotiator for the FBI. It was just such a cool episode. Um, stay tuned. You're going to love this one. Guys, welcome to today's episode of The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazde, and boy, do we have an amazing guest. I am so pumped right now. We have Mr. Chris Voss in the house. What's up, Chris? Darius, thank you for having me on. I'm happy to be on The Greatness Machine. Oh, man. The Greatness Machine just became a lot greater with Chris Voss here. <laughs> very kind. Very kind. Uh, so, so good to have you here. So um, for our listeners who are new to the show, um, The Greatness Machine, we're really about two things, people who are living their passions and those who are creating greatness in the world and doing so despite the odds. And Chris is neither short of passion nor greatness. Chris, um, I love to usually tell people, uh, a lot of times I have a little bit of background with our guests. And I don't know if you remember this or not, but we met through a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Jeff Spencer. So that's actually how we know each other. Um, he introduced Jeff me Spencer to Spencer is one of the great guys on the planet. I really like Jeff. What just, you know, he's such, such a stud and we won't make this show too much about him, but yeah, he's actually coming to Austin where I live and, uh, working with some, some of my people in the next couple of weeks. But yeah, Jeff's a great guy and he was gracious enough to make an introduction to me and your team. And here we are, man, like almost a year later, uh, doing the greatness machine. Um, so what I'd love to do is, you know, in the greatness machine, we, we have a, 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 we love to hear about people's origin stories because I think create, a lot of times people see the end result and they just assume like, and, and they say, I, I want to go there. I want to go do what Chris did. I want to go do something badass. Um, but, but I always find that people ignore the origins, like how to get started. So I'd love, I'd love if you told our listeners a little bit of your origin story. How did you get started? How did you get into what you got into? Because you've, you've done a lot of amazing stuff and, and actually forgive me. I'm, 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 I just <laughs> screwed up here. Can I give you your formal bio and then we'll go to the origin story? Does that work for you? Yeah, sure. You know, and you want to cut that thing short because I know it's tedious. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to run quick. This shows you how pumped I am to have Chris on the show. Listeners will be like, we've never heard Darius screw up. And I'm like, I don't screw up that often. But I screwed up right now because I love this guy's work so much. Um, nice. <laughs> so Chris is author of Never Split the Difference. Uh, negotiating as if your life depended on it. You're the CEO and founder of the Black Swan Group. Uh, you were a former member, member of the New York City uh, Joint Terrorist Task Force for 14 years, FBI's chief international hostage negotiator from 03 to 07. And you spent 24 years 
in the FBI crisis negotiation unit. Um, I, I, I mean, the list goes on to your point. Taught at Harvard, you know, t- you've taught all over the place. And I, and I actually caught that you uh, went to the Kennedy School at, at Harvard as well. You got your master's there. Yeah, I got Very- my master's at the Kennedy School. Very cool, man. Um, but yeah, look, like again, your point, uh, diving right into it, I would love to hear the origin story. I'm sure, I mean, all those accolades and all those amazing jobs are, are so great, but like no one starts there. Like, how did you say it, man? I want to go become an, a hostage negotiator. I doubt that's how, how it started, but, but look, give us, give us kind of the background. Yeah. And so, and look, I'm a, I'm a regular guy and I am a deeply, you know, we're all flawed. I'm a deeply flawed human being. So, uh, which is one of the things that um, when I was reading one of Tim Ferriss's books a long time ago, he was talking about the ridiculously successful people all got their flaws. Like to think that you got to be perfect to be successful is just, is just silly. Everybody's got flaws. I'm originally from a small town in Iowa, a blue collar environment, son of Richard and Joyce Voss, Mount Pleasant, Iowa, um, Midwestern work ethic. You know, I, I consider myself very blue collar, which is just kind of, you know, figure it out. Um, you got a task in front of you, f- figure out how to get it done. And if you see people working, you probably ought to pitch in and help them out. Like, you know, if you, if, if you, a guest culture, if you will, and like I lived in Los Angeles for a number of years, you show up at somebody's house for dinner in LA, you bring a bottle of wine, you sit down and people take care of you. You know, in, in my house, if you showed up for dinner, uh, you'd be expected to help set the table. That yeah, yeah. Kinda, you know, and if somebody's cleaning up at the end of the meal, you know, uh, take out the trash, you know, help out. So uh, my father was an entrepreneur and started, you know, putting his kids to work for him uh, and paying us, but putting us to work for him at an early age. And he'd give us a task and like figure it out. Uh, what what was so, your dad? What was your dad's business? It was uh, uh, what was uh, an oil jobber. Uh, okay. So he was the middleman between the big oil company and the and the end user. Okay. Which in in Iowa was typically it, when it first started out it was home f- heating oil for home furnaces that burn fuel oil, and then uh, uh, farms and in small industries, large farms, small industries, and then ultimately. You know, he owned a, bought some gas stations, turned them into convenience store gas stations. Entrepreneurial dude, you know, figured out. Did you have to work so at the gas station? Did, did you have to work at the gas station? You know, well, uh, the only gas station I, I actually worked at, uh, pumping gas, was uh, for for a gas station that he distributed gas to. Okay. And I and I worked there for, for a little while, but I, you know, most of my work for him was mostly a lot of maintenance work. A lot, lot of routine maintenance work. Then when I was old enough to drive his uh, fuel oil truck, you know, I started driving a fuel oil truck around. So I learned, you know, I need a chauffeur's driver's license, but not not, not as big as an 18-wheeler. Yeah. So, you know, I learned how to drive stuff. I mean, in, in the Midwestern work ethic, uh, like, for example, very practical approach, you see kids uh, driving tractors. Yeah. Like, you know, we, we had horses, we put up hay, you know, we cut, cut the hay and bailed it. The reason you see like a nine-year-old driving a tractor is because a nine-year-old ain't strong enough to throw the hay bales onto the wagon. You know, dad and older brother are throwing a hay bale. Somebody got to drive the tractor, you know, yeah. <laughs> just figure out who's <laughs> best for the right job. I love it. And as the environment that I grew up in, which then... Mid twenties decided to want to be in law enforcement. Thought it'd be cool to be a street cop someplace in uniform. Went to Kansas City. Got interested in federal law enforcement. Uh, by luck, the FBI was hiring a lot of people. Put in for the FBI. Ended up in New York. Didn't want to go to New York and loved it. Like it was not interested in New York and just had the best time there. Loved being in New York. And that led from started out as a SWAT guy, shifted over to hostage negotiation due to injuries. And, uh, you know, I mean, just like one left field thing out of the other, which That's... seemed interesting. And if, if I have any natural ability, it's that I'm coachable. And that's pretty much it. 
So, so when you got in the FBI, um, you started in law, law enforcement, you, and then you end up at the FBI. Was that when you ended up in New York City on the uh, Joint ter- Terrorist Task Force that was through the FBI? Yeah. Um, uh, got hired for the FBI. They started out in Pittsburgh. Policy at the time was start you out in a medium-sized office away from home. Mm-hmm. So you could get used to being an FBI agent in an environment where – you know, you're not locking up guys you went to high school with. Right, right. Or people aren't asking you for favors based on going to high school with you. So, And then a couple, okay. couple of years there, then they move you on to the big game. And at and that, time, that time, it was New York. What was, so, so what was that like for you, making that transition? I guess, I mean, first of all, going from, a, it sounds like you were a beat cop. Is that you were like, like just a, a normal street cop? And then Uni- Uniform uh, patrol in Kansas City, Missouri. So, so going from there to to the FBI, how was that transition for you? Like, was that were you was that just like, oh, I'm going to the big leagues? Like, how did you think about that? Well, I was, you know, I've always liked new challenges, um, you know, new new places to live, new things to learn, and it was a lot of fun for me. Um, you know, it was the first my first move into the Northeast from the Midwest. Started out in Pittsburgh, in Pittsburgh, pretty solid Northeast town. Yeah. And so and, you know, they they try to warm you up. They want you to succeed. So they start you out doing easy stuff in the FBI in in Pittsburgh. You know, they they start you out doing applicant investigations, which is background investigations. You're not chasing criminals. Mm -hmm. You got to get used to identifying yourself as an FBI agent, gathering information. So that's how they that's how they kind of start. Yeah. Wow, man, that's that's so interesting. So, so moving into, uh, you know, you're on the job, you get injured, and you move into hostage negotiation. Negotiation. Um, what do you like? What, t- tell us a little bit about that. Like, how did how did you pick that that swim lane? Was it that you had natural abilities? Like, what what what, what did it for you there? Well, first of all, I didn't think it'd be that hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's easy, no big deal. Just yeah, hostages. I talk to people. I could talk to terrorists. I talk every day. How hard could it be? You know, I, uh, my son and I like to joke that one of the unofficial Voss family models is how hard could it be? I love that. Which which isn't far, you know, from what they say is a redneck's famous last words, which is, hey, watch this. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. You know, how hard could it be? Does it, yeah. and, and many of the things that <clears throat> look easy is because people make them look easy. Right. And right. in fact, they're incredibly complicated. So, you know, I, I, I had my knee reconstructed for the second time. I was in SWAT. I was on a SWAT team in Pittsburgh. I was trying out for the FBI's hostage rescue team, which is the FBI's version of the Navy SEALs, and re-injured my knee. And so, um, you know, and those jobs are additional duties. Like you're, you're by day, you know, you got a, you got a day job of being oh. an investigator, then you become a negotiator as an additional duty. I really thought I, I like crisis response. I like that um, decisions have to be made in a crisis. Yeah, I'm a very action-oriented person, decision-oriented person. You know, there's a J- John F. Kennedy quote from way back: "The risks and costs of comfortable inaction are far greater than," um, and I'm paraphrasing, "to make a mistake now." Yeah, comfortable inaction is the problem. I hate inaction. Uh, so, uh, I crisis response. I still wanted to do it. We had hostage negotiators. I, they showed up when the SWAT team showed up and they were always there. I figured it was a simple transition. I was wrong, but I figured it was a simple transition. What, what did, so when you got into it, obviously there was a learning curve. What, what do you think made you such a great hostage negotiator? Well, it was first, um, uh, do I take direction and do I take initiative? Two things. I take direction and I take initiative. Now, how did that play out? Uh, when I first wanted to join the hostage negotiation team, um, it's an additional duty and there's a selection process. You, you, you put yourself up and they, they do or don't select you based on a variety of legitimate criteria. I matched none of those criteria. <laughs> none, not one. What what what, and, like, what what were some of those criteria that that, uh, that the you, criteria was uh, were you a hostage negotiator on a police department you came uh, from, okay. a degree in psychology, 
any background or education in what effectively is crisis intervention. Gotcha. Okay. Those are the most powerful skills. I didn't have any of that. And so got rejected. But then uh, I said, there has to be something I could do. And the head of the team in New York said, there is go volunteer on a suicide hotline. And uh, I, that was the direction and also take direction for the right person, Hmm. you know, uh, never take uh, advice from somebody you wouldn't trade places with or who hasn't been where you're going. I would have gladly, she was head of the team. I ended up being head of the team before I left New York. So she was somebody worth listening to. So uh, I took direction and then I took the initiative to go volunteer on a suicide hotline. I had to go out and find one, had to go uh, do it in my spare time. You know, it didn't have the least clue as to how to locate one and stumbled on a, uh, a very good, probably the best possible choice for crisis hotline at the time, which also happened to be the same one that the head of the team had volunteered on. So, you know, I took direction from the right person and I took initiative and that ends up being, uh, you know, 95 percent of the battle. So so after you you did that work, that qual that I, I'm assuming that you had the qualifications that they were looking for to bring you into the negotiation team. How was that? What was that like for you to go into these super high stress situations? And was it just like, Hey, here's a process. We follow it. Or was there nuance involved? We're using natural ability. Like walk us through what what that must've been like, especially from someone that hadn't done it before. Yeah. Well, I felt, I felt good about it from the very beginning because by the time I went to the FBA's hostage negotiation school, I had been volunteering on a suicide hotline for some time. And as they're playing tapes from actual negotiations in the, in the class, I remember thinking to myself, I've been doing this for a year. I just didn't have a SWAT team outside. Oh, interesting. And so I felt that I'd learned the process and I was very com- competent at, in, in the process and confident in the process. There's some real, the nuances of competence and confidence are really important. Like loud confidence, loud confidence is to be avoided. Like I avoid people that are loudly, boisterously confident. You know, to me, they're making up for lack of competence. Yeah. Uh, but discovering a good process and becoming competent in, in the process gives you a quiet confidence because you don't, you know, you don't get rattled. Yeah. So I was very, I was very confident in the process. And the other thing that made me competent in it was after I volunteered on the hotline for a year, uh, I didn't appreciate the perishable nature of emotional intelligence. Like if you're not exercising your emotional intelligence and a black swan method is just, you know, the application of emotional intelligence calibrated by neuroscience. It's really effective. Uh, If you're not practicing it, it goes away. So how did it go away for me? I'd volunteered on the hotline for a year and my skills had been slowly eroding because I thought using them all the time was the equivalent of getting better. You know, that would be as if Tiger Woods never went on, uh, went out and practiced like Tiger Woods was, notorious for constantly practicing. Right. You know, he, he didn't, he didn't win those tournaments by only playing in tournaments. Right. You know, he practiced his tail off when he wasn't in tournaments and I didn't understand that distinction. So I come up from my one year review and I'm horrible. I mean, and I thought I did great on the call and the guy that reviewed me was like, no, that was horrible. This is that, this is that the suicide or this is in the FBI and the suicide hotline. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so I had about the time that things were kicking into gear for me professionally, I then had gotten it pointed out to me that the, uh, the negotiation skills were highly perishable. And so then I, I've, I've always worked on maintaining them to this day. I work on maintaining them. So, so what do like, what do you, can you give us an example of what, if someone's, trying to, I mean, obviously this is a negotiation skill, but you're talking about it from a, uh, EQ perspective. Right. And, and, and I'm, I'm going to be going deep on this later in, in, in our interview, but, but what would be an example of ways people could practice for something like that? Or how did you practice for something like that? Well, there's a, there's a thing that we call a cold read, which is reading a person's emotions in a moment. 
And so, you know, you look at somebody and instead of saying, how are you? You take an emotionally educated guess on how they are based on a look on their face hmm. and, and, and let it be an accurate read. Like if they look upset, look at them and go, it looks like you're having a tough day. Now that doesn't reinforce the negatives. It actually dispels them, number one. There's been a whole bunch of neuroscience experiments that have been done that, that, that have shown that calling out negatives diffuses them. It's the most effective way to get rid of negatives. Not that I am calling them out. Interesting. You know, you look like you're having a tough day. Now, number one, it's a great neuroscience move. Number two, you may be the first person that actually saw them mm. and recognized that they were having a tough day. And people are deeply appreciative of that. So, what you know, whatever you read of the emotion on the person you're seeing, it uh, looks like you're. It looks like you're deep in thought. It uh, looks like your head is someplace else. Like uh, you know, you see somebody walking down the street at a fast pace, staring at the ground. You know, with a look of concentration on their face. Their mind is elsewhere, and they are working out a problem. Yeah. And you know, the cold read would be like, "Looks like you're really dealing with something right now." Yeah. And 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 it's it's amazing how how delighted people are in a moment that you saw them. So that, that's one of the ways you got to practice because in a uh, negotiation, you got to read the other person's emotion to figure out where the decisions are going. I mean, vision drives decision, and emotion drives vision. What does that mean? Emotion drives decision, good or bad. And if they're negative emotions drawing it, you don't deny them, you call them out. You know, it looks like you're not a, you're not comfortable with this deal. It looks like you something else is on your mind. It looks like uh feels like you've got some reluctance here. You know, that that's the, your cold read practices on the grocery store clerk, hmm. cashier, will help you do the read in the midst of the business or personal interaction that's going to accelerate you to a positive outcome. Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there, friends. It's Darius Mishazda here, and I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now. And let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. They stop me from fully enjoying the little things in life, canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of the sneezing fits, Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose, itchy, watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin D user for many, many years now, and let me tell you, it's made a world of difference. Since I started using Claritin-D, my symptoms have improved dramatically. Now, I can breathe easier, enjoy outdoor activities without worrying about sneezing fits, and truly live my life without being held back by allergies. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin-D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin-D at your local pharmacy counter now. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear, uses directed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry, and Supply & Demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the, did we hit a million dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify magic your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through. But then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. 
You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. So what what I'm hearing you say essentially is meeting people where they're at, right? Trying to figure out where they're at is is really one of the cornerstones of of negotiation is because you, I guess it's because if you don't meet them where they're at, there's friction in the air or it creates friction or there's, or, why is that? Yeah. Well, you know, and it's making them feel like you're meeting them where they're at. Right. Like, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about empathy and say it's putting yourself in the other person's shoes. Uh, first of all, it's step one and a better description would be see it through their eyes. Right. Because I personally feel the description of putting yourself in their shoes means you got to share their feelings and you don't and seeing it through their eyes is just seeing their perspective. But then that's an inadequate by itself. Um, You have to demonstrate by articulating what you think they're seeing. So it's kind of a two stage process. And so meeting them where they're at is to let them show them that you're trying to see it from their perspective, show them that you're trying to meet it, meet them where they're at. And you don't have to have the same emotion. Like if they, especially I, I hear all the time and uh, Jordan Belfort, Wolf of Wall Street gives this advice and he doesn't really realize that it's at step two of his advice. That's really effective. Jordan will say, you know, somebody's really upset. They're angry. Uh, so you should speak in the same tone of voice so that they'll feel the two of you are alike. Mm-hmm. And then you should start to bring your tone down so having met them where they were, you're, you're bringing them down. Like that first part is counterproductive. Like that doesn't help. Them. The second part, when you start bringing your voice down, that's really productive. And I think Jordan misses that because he was taught the way right. that I just described. And he used it and he misread his data and didn't really see that when he, when he started bringing people down, that's when he was really effective. Interesting. So, so, you know, talking about negotiation, I would love to hear what like the toughest negotiation you've ever been a part of, whether it's business or in, I'm assuming it's probably not in the business world, but, but just because you've dealt with people's lives, but what's the toughest negotiation that you, that stands out to you that you've ever been a part of? Yeah. Well, you know, tough, uh, what's your definition of tough? Like for me, a tough negotiation is when the other side, I got a problem with the other side's integrity, uh, which is going to set me off, which is set me off is, you know, emotions aren't bad for negotiations. Negative emotions are bad. Right. Positive emotions are very good for negotiations. So if I want to make a deal with them for whatever strategic reasons, and we, I, we don't do this anymore, but I did this a number of years ago because there were tremendous upside to make this deal. But their integrity was bad. And that set me off, which means I'm in a negative frame of mind, which means I'm dumber. And there's Sean Acker, a Harvard psychologist, said you're 31% smarter in a positive frame of mind. I, you know, I agree with that stat. I think it's solid. What's the flip side of that? By definition, when you're angry, you're dumber. <laughs> so <laughs> somebody's rubbing you the wrong way. You're in a bad mood. You're dumber. Right. Uh, there's kind of no way around that. So this person was setting me off and uh, I, I was, it was making me angry and I was dumber and I was having a lot of trouble dealing with the negotiation in the time. So that was tough for me personally because I wasn't at my best. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Speaking about dumb people, um, I, I lo- in, in, in the book, Never Split the Difference, you talk about how smart people always, don't always make the best negotiators. Yeah. You know, how, how, how does having maybe a curious mind or, you know, being a good listener, you know, benefit you when you're trying to be the best negotiator? Or why did you say that about smart people even to begin with? Yeah, Curious Mind, it's, it's a great um, description. 
and it tends to not overlap. It's not exclusive. You know, there are plenty of highly educated, highly intelligent people that are curious. Uh, but I remember reading an article quite a while ago, like about, um, geez, it was uh, just as I was getting ready to leave the FBI, which was a while back. And it was uh, the habits of highly effective negotiators. thought it was a really good article. And uh, he said that people with high, higher degrees and uh, or highly educated, highly intelligent, they really want to show off their degree. I mean, it worked really hard for that PhD. They want to show off what they learned. Sure. Instead of learning in the, in the negotiation. Mm. So you getting them out of the way of being so proud of that degree that they got to show it off for you. You're getting them out of the way of how smart they are, that they got to show it off for you. Because if you're showing off how much you know or how smart you are, you are not learning. Now, curiosity, what you mentioned before, curiosity is a superpower. Like for a whole bunch of reasons, you discover more, you see more, you make better decisions. It's impossible to be angry and curious simultaneously. Mm. So if you've got curiosity... Um, still, despite your higher education, uh, then 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 you'll probably be a good negotiator. And, and I will tell you a great example of this. I listen to Andrew Huberman's podcast all the time. Like Huberman's got the uh, academic credentials uh, as as far as anybody's as the eye can sure. see. Definitely, but he's still a very curious dude. You know, he's really interested in the world. And so uh, I listen to his stuff all the time because he has this great curiosity about what works and how do we know it works and what can I rely on because I'm placing bets on my own life. So he's retained his curiosity and consequently, you know, should he decide to become a negotiator, I think he'd be very good at it. Of course, he might put me out of a job. But, uh, <laughs> what, what, the, what the Japanese call it, shoshin, the beginner's mind, right? So having that begin, there you go. That's having exactly that beginner's right. mind, mind is clear. I love yeah. that. So um, I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about like just diff- some different experiences I've had with negotiation, and um, I went through a really big negotiation where I was exiting a company um, a couple years ago, and and one of my friends, he's actually a fellow Harvard grad, just like yourself. He said, Darius, you got to have a BATNA. And I said, well, what's a BATNA? <laughs> he said, you got to have a BATNA. And I said, what's a BATNA? He said, BATNA is best alternative to negotiated agreement. Right. And, you know, what's your BATNA? And I was like, well, shit, man, I don't know what my BATNA is. And so like, I, I it's a term I've started to use because I'm like, oh, it kind of makes sense logically. If, 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 Logically. If I take your deal, I get X, but if Y is better, I can leverage that to, you know, get a better deal off of, off of you because I know that if I don't take your deal, I got this other deal. I'd love to see, hear how you feel about BATNAs or, you know, what is, how, how, what, how do you use, like, like, what do you think about the term BATNA, I guess, number one, and, 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 and then I guess let's take it from there. All right, so I'm getting ready to sound really disrespectful of my Harvard colleagues. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and I studied at Harvard. I taught alongside them. I mean, I learned a lot from, from them, collaborated with them. Happy to collab- continue to collaborate with them this day. Very smart people, a lot of great ideas. Uh, unfortunately, um, sort of this BATNA nonsense is one of their, uh, cornerstone concepts and a thing that I've seen on a regular basis, especially negotiators from the hostage negotiation world, uh, uh, go into business negotiation, you know, uh, and my son, even though he wasn't in law enforcement, used to call BATNA, you know, the BS alternative to negotiated agreement. (laughs) The real problem with BATNA and it's intellectually sound. It's an intellectually sound idea, but human beings are not intellectually sound. We're emotionally driven. Fair enough. So if you start out being taught that you need a BATNA, then like you're horrified if you don't have one or a good one. Like you're, right. you've already taken, you take yourself hostage. Yeah, I'm screwed. I'm screwed. I don't yeah. have a better alternative, right? Totally. Right, right. Now, in hostage negotiators, it's a little bit of the equivalent, I think, of walking a tightrope with or without a net. Like if you learn walking a tightrope, without a net from the get-go. You're like, all right, you know, I could do this. I learned it without a net. You know, we started at, you know, three feet off the ground, no net, and we got higher and higher. And, like, I'm not rattled that there's no net. But if you learned walking a tightrope with a net, 
that doesn't change the challenge of walking the tightrope at all. Right. At okay. all. Okay. But you're going to be scared to step foot on that tightrope if the net ain't down there. Like, oh, I don't know. This is not. But, but the physical, the actual challenge of walking a tightrope and a focus and a concentration and the physical abilities haven't changed one iota. So when um, I was teaching at Georgetown, we started experimenting with this concept because we had a simulated negotiation, uh, written a case written at Harvard, and used used our case studies for practice. When I when I did practice, I'm I'm not a if your fundamental basis for practicing negotiations are artificial situations, which is what those Harvard case studies are. They're very limited in their use. You are not ready by practicing fake scenarios. And and we I use them because there is a place for them. And this was a group negotiation and each group had a bat net. Like you got a, you scored points based on terms and your bat net, let's say your bat is seventy five points. Okay. So if you don't if you don't come up with at least seventy five points in your terms, then uh, you fail. So what BAT ends up becoming is a goal that you're satisfied once you cross the threshold, hmm. which means you're going to leave money on the table. If you don't, you, ha- if you, you don't have goal. a BATNA or if you do have a BATNA or both. If you, if you, if you have, if you've worked out a BATNA, if that's part of your prep, right? What do I do if this doesn't work out? Here's my alternative. That instead of becoming your safety net becomes your goal. Right. So we right. started testing this idea. I started raising and lowering the batna in the exercise. And if I raised the batnas on the teams, they'd all do better hmm. every time. And I thought, again, this is this is artificial. There's there was no change whatsoever in their negotiation ability at the exercise. If I switched an artificial construct that does not impact their ability, they do a better job. Interesting. And that's the whole that so that and then we thought about it and like, okay, this this batna hasn't become a safety net, it's become a goal. And then people are li- uh, stop as soon as they reach a the goal, they declare success, victory, woohoo. I won. And they leave massive amounts of money on the table. And that's that's the real problem with bat. Two problems. You're horrified if you don't have one. Right. And secondly, you quit, you declare victory, and you go home while you're still leaving money on the table. Oh, man. I love that. So um, I, I want to tell you a story about when I learned how to negotiate when I was 12 years old. And and it was from my dad, my late dad. So uh, the reason I asked you if your dad owned a, uh, if you worked at the gas station is because my dad owned a ga- owned gas stations, and I worked at the gas stations. Uh, but my dad's from Middle East, from Iran, and I was ah, in. Uh, yeah, that's it, a that's a that's a long history of negotiators. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and so we were we were I was a uh, graduate sixth grade, and my family went to uh, Mexico. We went to Rosarito, Mexico, for the weekend. Stayed in some little dodgy little place, and we're walking around a market, and and this this guy is selling this like kind of like this like blue leather bag, and he goes to my, my dad's like from Iran, heavy accent, like you know, real spicy guy, like you you'd love him if you met him, and sure. and so so um, the guy goes, Senor, Senor, you know, would would you like to buy my bag? You know, my dad says, How much? And the guy goes, Venti dollars. Venti dollars. And my and I remember I was this thing happened where my dad looks him square in the eye and goes, I give you one dollar. My dad offered him <laughs> <laughs> and I was horrified. Nice. Chris, I was horrified. <laughs> I said, Holy shit, this guy offered my dad this bag for 20 bucks. And my dad told him he'd give him one dollar. <laughs> so nice. I remember I was sitting there and I was like, I was really like, I got anxious. And um, my dad ends up buying the bag for six bucks. Right. And I remember, I remember looking and I was like, holy shit, price is artificial. I just remember it was a lesson I learned. I was 12 years old. And, and, and and so I I always tell people that story when I talk about negotiation, where I said, I learned how to negotiate from my dad. But it was interesting 
in that his perspective, and, and I think in negotiation, there's always a, this like hit him high and offer him low, and then we meet in the middle. I just wanted to tell you that story because that was that was a really interesting moment in my life, and it taught me a lot. And I've always still kind of thought felt like it was this like weird game. But I'd love to hear your thoughts about this idea of hit him high, hit him low, meet in the middle. Like like what are your thoughts about that? Because that's such a thing people talk about so much when it comes to negotiation. Right, right. Um, so. It's probably going to sound way convoluted. Uh, that's bargaining slash bartering slash haggling. Mm-hmm. Now, if you negotiate really well, you, you 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 never have to bargain. Okay. So there are emotional touch points that have to be hit. I mean, what why does that tend to work? Why do people end up doing that? Because both sides feel they've accomplished something. Mm. And... But neither side feels great about it. I mean, you got to be careful about that downward spiral. And that's sort of a bargaining scenario, which is good practice for bargaining. That's a one-off. Got it. And the problem is, as soon as you start knocking somebody's price down, it's probably not a one-off negotiation, even if you think it is. Like, your dad can get away with that because you're on vacation in Mexico. You're walking through a marketplace. People on either side of that 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 barter, that haggle, they're never going to see each other again. Right. Like, your dad gets home and that bag wears out. He ain't going back to the vendor. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, logistically, it's not there. So you got to be really careful about and it never split the difference. We have a bargaining method. You know, it's laid out from the buy side. Uh, all the psychological uh, techniques work from the sell side because it's psychological. Calculated moves coming in at certain percentages. Every one of your changes have to be half the size of the other. Decreasing increments. Like that's the most effective bargaining method out there, bar none. Bar none. And you can get a great price. But what do you do if you beat somebody on price really badly and you turn around, you got to come back to them mm-hmm. in a way you didn't anticipate? One of, one of the students in my class at Georgetown used this method, this, uh, the Black Swan bargaining method. Got a great price at Home Depot on kitchen cabinets. I mean, killed them. Uh, and thought, you know, it was essentially a one-off. Well, as it turned out, a couple weeks later, there were some issues with the cabinets and the installation that had to be addressed. And when he went back in there, they remembered how badly he had skinned them on a price. Right. And they extracted every last dime back out of them. (laughs) So everybody wants to bargain as if it's a one-off. And it's not. And even if it's a one-off with that person, your reputation precedes you wherever you go. Right. You know, do you know, do something good, three people know about it, do something bad, twelve people know about it. Like you skin somebody good in a deal, even if you didn't brag about it, and you probably did, the word about you gets around real fast. Right. And then the the uh the time frames between good deals get longer and longer. Until they finally go away. You know, uh, Donald Trump, I remember the story, he buys this golf course in California. And he's having trouble with the local government bureaucracy, which in California is frequently very challenging. And he wants to make changes in a golf course. And so he can't get the approvals. So he just sends his contractors in and they start making the changes. And he, you know, he dares... The, the county to sue him over it. You know, he dares the local officials, you know, you don't like what I'm doing, sue me. Take me to court. We'll fight mm-hmm. it out in court. I'll bury you. So he gets his way. What do you think is going to happen if he wants to make another purchase in that same city or county or even not in the ha- state? Not happening. Like th- they know that this is an assertive guy that is going to roll over them if they start the business relationship. So do they they fight back? Do they argue? No, it's just they go into this passive aggressive thing where 
they don't they don't fight him. They just don't deal with him. And he, he has trouble making deals. Donald Trump had plans for the West Side Railroad Yards in Manhattan, had plans uh, when I was there in the 1980s to build this magnificent complex with the tallest building in in the world, which is like a cool thing. I mean, Trump's aspirations have always been for grandeur, and there's nothing wrong with that. No. But he had done so many real estate projects in New York at that time, uh, uh, Grand Central Station, Woman Skating Rink, Trump Tower, a couple of Trump business businesses. You know, it was longer and longer periods of time. And he, before he could get deals with the city, and he needed approvals for the West Side Railroad Yards, which is now Chelsea and magnificent. Yeah. And every one of the players in New York just refused to approve anything. And he sat on that for years, unable to develop it. Now, it was against the interests of the people that were disagreeing with him to block him. And they didn't care. They get mm. so tired of him rolling over them that they were not going to allow any sort of development to take place there as long as he was involved. Shortly after he finally sells his interest, if you go to that same part of town now, it's magnificent. The development is absolutely magnificent. One of the, one of the gems uh, in Manhattan, great development. That's what happens when, you, when you're aggressive and you're assertive and you roll over people and you win these great victories and they just can't wait to pay you back simply by failing to cooperate. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it kind of puts to what you were talking about before, which is we do not, we are emotional creatures, right? So this is that it's purely an emotional response. If logically it makes sense for me to do it, but emotionally I say, for lack of better words, screw you. I'm not doing yeah. that deal, right? Yeah. I love that. Love that. Um, you know, in, in the book, you, you you have a suggestion during during the the uh, never split the difference process of negotiation, um, where when I want to turn down an offer that I don't like, I say, "How am I supposed to do that?" Right. Which I I swear I probably have said that a thousand times since I read the book. <laughs> I coach people on negotiation. I'm like, listen, if you don't like what they have to offer, just say, "How am I supposed to do that?" and then shut the hell up. Um, tell us why you think this is so effective, because I just think that's such an interesting way to, I mean, I love the whole black swan approach. I love the never split the difference approach, but yeah, tell, walk us through like, why is it that, why is it, why is it those words? Why is it that process? Tell me about that. Yeah, that's probably, you know, there's two phrases in a black swan method that have just are famous because they've been used so much and they work so well. You know, how am I supposed to do that? Or have you given up on X? Um, so, yeah, it originally, how am I supposed to do that? Originally started out of the first phase of no. Now, what makes that so effective? First of all, it's got to be said in a great tone of voice. So your tone of voice doesn't trigger them. You know, uh, deferential. There's great power in deference. And then with deference, the how question is triggers deep thinking in the other side, which their reaction is more important than their answer. Now, the answer is really good. Nine times out of ten. But the reaction is what's important. Uh, my son Brandon, who's a brilliant negotiator, he said that how am I supposed to do that triggers forced empathy. Mm. It makes them stop and look at you mm. and take into account your position. It's a natural question to ask if, if it's a really difficult thing to do. Like it's an inescapable, legitimate question. And then finally, what we've discovered is we continue to evolve the black swan method over the years. It's really an implementation question. How questions are principally designed to reveal implementation. You know, how am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to implement that? So it forces the other side to take a look at you and think about and then compare that with implementation without telling them, like, look, this is difficult. This doesn't fit my situation. This is never going to work. That Those are the things that you want to have happen in their head, but that you can't tell them. Right. So how am I supposed to do that? What it does is it triggers the thoughts that you need to be in their head. It's just the most effective way to trigger them without telling them, because telling people something is an extremely inefficient way to get a point across. Oh, I love that, man. 
Yeah, I was, I was, I, it makes total sense, right? And especially if, if, if this is, the, if there's an art of persuasion that's part of this in the negotiation, right? So what I heard you just say is, I can't tell you what to think, but I can plant the seed to make you, I guess, feel empathy to understand where I'm coming from to then you question whether you're trying to get this deal done or not, right? If you know that I can't do that, but I didn't tell you that, right? It, it, it changes your, unless you don't care if you get the deal done, right? Or if you don't care how hard it is on me. And that's, and, and how am I supposed to do that? And I said, works nine times out of 10. One time in 10, the other side's going to throw it right back at you. Like, I don't care, or I don't care what happens to you. I don't care how you do it. Just do it. Or here's how you do it. Right. And it's so effective overall that when people get it thrown back on them, Adam, they're like, oh, my God. And I've had people say this. Hey, oh, my God, it didn't work. And I said, no, it didn't work. What it did was reveal to you who the other side really was, mm. that they don't care about you. They don't care about your problems. So now you've got a decision to make. You don't like the information you've been given. You know, great negotiation is an information gathering process. Right. And you might not like it, but now you know. You know, the information is not always, the news is not always going to be good. But once you get solid news, you're always better off going from wondering to knowing. If you wondered whether or not the person just doesn't care about you at all, you now know. Right. Now, you don't like it, but you now you know, plus now you don't fantasize about them ever caring about you or this being a great long-term relationship. Because the best indicator of future behavior is past behavior. They don't care one iota about you now that's probably going to be the same way it is in six months or 12 months or 18 months or three years now you've got a decision to make for your own long-term survivability is this a great long-term partner no they're not mm. so you know there's nothing wrong with having a tiger by the tail as long as you don't think you're holding on to a pussycat yeah man this is awesome i love this man um I want to, I want to transition. So, um, I have a really good friend, probably one of the most successful people I know owns tons of real estate, owns professional sports teams. I mean, he's a real player. Right. And we were having a conversation about negotiation and he said, you know, I know everyone always says, you know, never make the first offer. He's like, I completely disagree with that. I always make the first offer. And, and so I, I, I said to myself, I said, if I ever talk to Chris, I'm going to ask him this question. What do, what do you think about that? What do you think about the, the idea of A, never make the first offer, or B, I always make the first offer? Well, some of it is, some of it is uh, buy side, sell side issues. Um, what uh, depends upon where your offer is at and um, then how you negotiate terms in conjunction with it. You know, so there's some rules on price, uh, mm -hmm. RIP, rule, rules involving price. You know, prices don't make deals, but they can kill deals. So if you're an extreme offer person and you're going to say, I always make the first offer, I always anchor high, you're, you're failing to make deals you should have made. Hmm. Now, there are some really successful people that – always make the first offer and always anchor heavy. And those are two separate issues. Um, but extreme uh, terms, whether you go first or second, drives deals from the table that you should have made. Now, I personally hate not making a deal that I should have made. I know it's driving deals from the table. I see it over and over and over again. So, so, but someone can be very successful because they're, they're very competitive uh, and, and they, uh, they're in a position where they can is, uh, ignore the deals they're not making. But how much time did you put into that deal? What did you pass up? You know, the long-term relationship, how much did that damage you? Again, it's, uh, is, is your offer first is an, ex is an extreme offer. Now, I will tell you that, you know, sometimes, most of the time, sometimes we got to throw a number on the table first. I, I never drop a number naked, as it were. Uh, so I'll, I'll do some emotional work with you 
Mm-hmm. For example, I'll say like, look, we're expensive. We, we could have deal with the client. Uh, and we're the only ones that teach people how to do this. So they had never seen this move before. Sales Salesperson on the other side of the table, they're buying negotiation training for their sales team. Our head of sales says, we are very, 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 very expensive. Now, the salesperson that she was negotiating with, who was experienced, seasoned, thought he was really good, remembers that moment and says, I would never say that. <laughs> and two days later, we had a deal at our price. Your team we said... Didn't come down, we didn't come off our price by one dime. Your team said that. We said we're very, very, very expensive to them. Yep. And, and, yeah. they, and they had an emotional trigger to that. Their emotional trigger was like, you know, that's stupid. I would never say that because it was an experienced business person on the other side of the table. He's like, I would never say that ever, uh, ever, ever. I always, I, I always say that. <laughs> yeah. You, when, I mean, when you, you know, if you got to drop a number, don't drop it out there negative. I mean, you got some emotions to deal with with the other side. Uh, deactivate them and, sure. and, and drop and drop the number. Yeah, I love that. What um so speaking of Black Swan so so obviously you've you've segued this FBI negotiation expertise into the private sector, and I know we're we're, we're running in we're a running very out of successful time. way, yeah, yeah, very very successful. Um, tell us about Black Swan. Tell us about who you're working with, what you're doing with that now. Obviously, the book's a huge success, but yeah, I'd love to hear who you guys are working with, what type of work you're doing. A lot of our listeners are probably potential clients, but yeah, would love would love to have you educate our audience on. The, the work that Black, Black Swan's doing? We work with people who are curious and ambitious. You know, we work with uh, with people that are tired of leaving money on the table. When, you, when you're tired of leaving money on the table, you come to the Black Swan group. When you've got a, a gnawing feeling that you just can't put your finger on it, but you've done enough deals and you just feel like you, you're leaving money on the table and you, you don't exactly know why. Uh, you got to be trainable. You, you got to be coachable. Our clients are largely successful entrepreneurs. But, you know, we get some successful corporate types. I, you know, I describe them as the top 1%, the top performers. People are curious and ambitious. You know, they want to do better. And they, but they realize that they got to work at it. And somewhere along the line, they learn that negotiation is a perishable skill. Like if somebody comes up to me and goes like, I'm a great negotiator. I'm like, all right, you stopped learning a long time ago. If you've designated yourself as great, you've begun to atrophy. Mm. And uh, and it's really easy to take advantage of you because if you say that, you've got a big ego. And I just go like, oh, ah, you are fantastic. <laughs> like, I'm going to get the upper hand on you. If I flatter the heck out of you, you're going to drop your guard because it's so emotionally satisfying. You're saying, I'm a great negotiator. Yeah, you are. Because you get emotional satisfaction out of it. Your currency is emotional satisfaction. So I'm going to pay you an emotional satisfaction. I'm going to kill you on the terms. <laughs> I love it. So, so when uh, entrepreneurs or high-level execs are coming, are you are they are they? So let's say they come, and they say, "Hey, I got this really hard deal. I want you guys to consult with me on it, or is it, I want you to train me." Or you guys, like walk us through some ways people work with you. Well, we get both. Um, Usually, uh, frequently, we do a lot of coaching. And, you know, we'll, we'll coach you through a deal. We won't negotiate on your behalf. We'll coach you through it. Anywhere from one to three sessions is all you're going to need. And if you're coachable, you're going to use the skills. And you're going to accelerate to the best outcome possible. You know, two issues, two important terms there, accelerate, which means you're not wasting time. Yeah. Best outcome possible. You may not still may not want that deal. You just need to know what the best possibility was. So accelerate to the best outcome possible. Now, probably in the course of the training, you're going to be like, "Oh, I, I, I don't want to do without this. Like, I need this. Plus, it's a it's a perishable skill. Like, I need to continue to work at it." So many of our coaching clients come to us over specific deals, and they they remain long term clients. Now, where are you in your your learning journey. We're going to, there's a, a couple of shortcut ways to get you used to our vernacular, some short, simple, easy ways. 
And then if, if you realize that teaching yourself to get better is a really smart thing to do, you know, it's experience and education. It's not just education and it's not just experience. Mm. If you think only one or the other, then you know when you're as good as you can be. So, you know, we'll figure out what training online or in person. You know, we got in-person negotiation training sessions, even the top negotiators. I mean, this is like, you know, you get an immersion day. We do a two-day training and we got no shortage of people that that night, in the night between the days, will go and cut a great deal because they were so sharp based on an immersion during the day that they were, they, you know, they saw something that night in a, like in a ridiculously creative and solid way. So, you know, top performers, not necessarily entrepreneurs, but mostly. Oh man, this is, this is so exciting. So, um, man, I want to learn more. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to go get coached by you guys. Um, so, so interesting, man. Chris, well, let's do some follow up on how people could learn more. How about that? Like, yeah. yeah. Two rec- go ahead. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah, no, no, please, please. That's where I was going to go. I know we're at the top of the hour here. So yeah. How can people learn more and how do they connect? Because our listeners are your audience for sure. Yeah, well, uh, two two things, one uh, for free and one really inexpensive. Now, this is assuming that you've read the book. Like the book is uh, the book is a reference manual and it's an interesting read. Amazing. But then read. Subscri- uh, thank you. Yeah. Tall yeah, Ross. Yeah. Brilliant writer. Awesome, man. Awesome book. It's one of my favorite books of all time. And I read a lot of books. You, everyone needs to much. read this book. Sorry, please. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then subscribe to our newsletter. Our newsletter is free. Uh, the website, blackswanltd.com, spelled like it sounds, blackswanltd.com, upper right-hand corner of the homepage is a, is a button that either says the blog or the newsletter. Uh, you used to say the blog, uh, you know, we're going to have a change to the newsletter. Anyway, sign up for the newsletter, click that. There's a whole catalog of concise articles, actionable. The newsletter's free. When you sign up, uh, you get an email on Tuesday morning with the most recent article, one article, not 10 where you got to make up your mind, but just one short, concise, 700 ish words plus training announcements or event announcements. We got a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff for free on our website, which will help you get your skill level up. Take one of our courses or if you like a lot of really great video interaction like Masterclass, which is an insane deal. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, our my negotiation course, our negotiation course on Masterclass is their number one class. It's the cheapest money you'll ever spend. It's it's high-quality video instruction. Sign up for that. Oh, man. What, what, what a gift to have you on the show, to learn from you. I'm so, so great, grateful for you to – teach our audience and answer all these amazing questions and to be doing the work you're doing. So listeners, please go check out um, every, we'll put it on the show notes too for, for all the connections for black Swan. So, but yeah, get the book, go to the website, sign up for the newsletter. I'm going to be doing, I mean, I've already done some of that stuff, but I'm going to do even more. And um, Chris Voss, you the man. Thank you so much. There for being is on the, show. the greatness machine. <laughs> it was a pleasure to be on. Thank you so much. Yeah. And listeners, uh, if you love the show, please share it with friends. That's how we learn. We learn from each other. And don't be afraid to give us a review. Mr. Chris Voss, you're the man. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Peace out, you guys. We love you. You are listening to The Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Listen. If you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform that you're tuning in on so that you don't miss any of our future episodes. We have tons of great people coming on and we're, we're stoked to have you here to enjoy it with us. Leave us a review. Tell us what you love most about this particular episode. We love getting the reviews. We love to see what you guys love most. And if this particular episode you know, made you think of someone who's leveling up in their business and in their life, print screen, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we're all here to support and grow with each other. 
And in case you want to see some of the fun behind the scenes shots or some of the things that we're doing, I'm actually writing about this in my weekly newsletter. Go to www.therealdarius.com and subscribe to my newsletter. We're talking about fun things like business and life and mindfulness and cryptocurrencies and gosh, I don't even know everything and anything, but it's tons of fun stuff I write about. I try to get it out on a weekly basis. You can subscribe at www.therealdarius.com. And with that said, look, thank you guys so much. I appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We're out of here. See you guys on the next one. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.